You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, November 18th, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. On this date in 1307, and according to legend, William Tell shoots an apple off of his son's head. Remember that from school or cartoons or yeah. I'm pretty else sure that's crap. That's apocryphal. So last year, last year was the 700-year anniversary of that. That's exactly correct. And you know how they celebrated? Uh, by shooting apples off people. Oh, I'm heads. asking. I'm not telling. <laughs> oh, oh. But that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> One could only assume. Whose idea was that anyway? Well, it wasn't the sun's idea, I can tell you that. I was just reading about it in a mythology book. It's really funny that you should bring it up. That is kind of funny. Coincidence? Tell split the fruit with a single bolt from his crossbow without mishap. Isn't that amazing? I don't really believe that. You're skeptical, you're saying. <laughs> okay, actually, I can tell you something about it. Is that it is bullcrap. It's, it's a myth that has been kind of told and retold, apparently, because... The same exact story of William Tell was told earlier of a similar archer named Punker, and he was ordered by a prince to shoot a penny off his son's head. That's much cooler. Yeah, it's a little harder. Although pennies in that day were much bigger. The name Punker is just much cooler. (laughs) (laughs) Pennies were actually the size of a pumpkin. Right. right. Um, (laughs) And they wore an onion on their back. And kids were a lot smaller then, too. Now, the official seal of the Helvetic Republic is the scene of William Tell shooting the arrow or the apple off of uh, the sun's head. So are we saying that the official seal of the Helvetic Republic is a lie? Apparently. I don't know. Is it is it serif or sans serif? Sans serif. Do you know what sans serif actually means? Gesundheit? Without script or something? Yeah, sans meaning without, and it's without the little curlies on the end of the uh, of the font. Right. I know, jerkies. That was the joke I was making about Helvetica font. Hello. <laughs> Uh, uh, well, well, then your joke wasn't you know funny. What? I'm just, sorry. I need, I need to find a new podcast. <laughs> Jay's just not up to font jokes. <laughs> That's I was making a font-based font humor. How, How often do me? you encounter font-based humor in your everyday life? Talk about <laughs> apparently geeky. one too many times. Every time I have a wing ding. Well, we have a lot of news <laughs> items to get through. So Rebecca outgeeked us. News items. <laughs> the first news item is NASA takes the first pictures ever of exoplanets, planets outside of our own solar system. Very First cool. picture, wait a second, they've seen 300 exoplanets. What's this first They've blown? detected them, Bob. Ah, I know, Steve. No. Yeah. Uh, Come on, man. <laughs> you don't think I don't know this story? So, yeah, that's all you did. really engaging us with a conversational tone that we weren't really <laughs> expecting. Well, I'm, I'm right, Bob, good, give us a lowdown. Come on. I'm a good actor. Well, actually, two separate teams of astronomers have... Uh, have imaged, directly imaged, for the first time, without any uh, contention among astronomers, planets. These, these are planets that have been directly seen. They, they haven't been seen the old-fashioned way, which was the transit method, which uh, detects the dip in the star's brightness or the gravitational tug that the planet might have on the star. So these are, have been directly imaged, and it's, uh, th- this is actually a really difficult thing to do. One, somebody came up with a really good analogy. They said that uh, trying to do this by directly just imaging the star is kind of like trying to see a match next to a floodlight. 
at a distance of a mile. So this mm-hmm. is really difficult, and this is why it's taken so long for this feat to have been done. Some people, if you really follow this kind of stuff, you might say that, well, this has been claimed before, and I think we actually even talked about a story similar to this recently. The problem is, though, that all these other sightings have either been shown to be false or that they're uh, they're waiting final confirmation. So this is the Mm -hmm. first time that we've imaged a star, a planet, rather, without any... Everyone agrees, yep, these are planets, because they actually have been tracking these things for quite some time. They've tracked them actually long enough to determine that, yes, these objects are in orbit around the parent star. It's not something that just happens to be uh, along the line of sight. Now, the interesting thing is that the two teams did it differently. One of them, the Hertzberg Institute of Astrophysics in British Columbia, using the Keck telescope and other telescopes, they used a software coronagraph, uh, just using software and image processing to actually subtract the star so that that anything that wasn't starlight um, would show up, and that's how... And that's how they found uh, the, the the three planets that they found. Yeah, that picture is cool. I mean, you yeah, get this little fuzzy yeah. star in the middle, and you see three planets. You know, yeah. in various parts of the orbit around the around the, the central star. It's really cool. So, how far away is it? How far away from us? Well, this other team in um, University of California, Berkeley, they they found one uh, called around the star Fomalhaut. That's twenty five light years away in the constellation. Uh, Pisces Ostrinus, I think you would pronounce that. Uh, now, they didn't the use the software coronagraph. They didn't use software. They used, they used the Hubble and actually had a real you know, coronagraph, which is basically a disk that is put in front of the star that blocks all the starlight so that you could see objects that are, are near. It's, it creates an artificial eclipse. Now, they called it... Now, this planet is about... Let's see. It, it's its uh, year is 87 Earth years uh, for an orbit. It's about three Jupiter masses... And uh, they also suspect that it might have an enormous ring around it, dwarfing mm-hmm. perhaps even Saturn's. Now, what do you think they call this planet? Something cool, right? No, they call <laughs> yeah. it Fomalhaut B. Fomalhaut B, um, yeah. I mean, don't you... But how, why, are they, why are they so boring? That's my question. Why are they so boring with these names? The, the star is named Fomalhaut. Yeah, they can't even throw it... They can't even make it Fomalhaut Beta. I mean, come uh, on. Yeah, right? <laughs> I think that if, if you discover something extraordinary or, or if it's a first that you can break with convention and just come up with something really unique and interesting, like Krypton or Stavromula Beta. Or Otis or That would be cool. Something. Otis Berg. What's cool about this one, Bob, is that they suspected that there was a planet, because this is a young solar system, and there's a disk of dust and debris, uh, like an accretion right. disk around it, but the accretion disk is not centered on Fomalhaut. So they said, well, there must be something else that's dragging this disk out of the right. out of, uh, place. So that's right. that's how they they suspected that there probably is going to be a large right. planet orbiting far from this from this star. Yeah. Plus, the edges were really clean of the inner di- the, the space in, uh, in the inner disk. So yeah. So they 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 knew something was they were going to find something there. And that means just to clarify, that means that the planet was clearing out debris in in, in right. its ring. So that's it has, why it had just this clean edge. It has dominated its uh, its orbital path. Right. <laughs> the astronomer, the uh, the main guy who uh, led this team, Dr. Paul Callis, uh, he said something that just kind of struck me as odd. Regarding the the relative proximity of the planet to ours, he said it's close enough to contemplate sending spacecraft there. A close, I'm thinking close enough, all right, 25 light years relatively, that's damn close, but we're still talking 146.5 trillion miles. What, are you going to send a spacecraft and wait thousands of years? For, um, yeah, it's still going to take thousands of years. But still, pretty cool. Pretty cool that we finally have, 
you know, a real direct imaging of planets. And now it's not just one planet. Now it's like it's like four planets now. And and mm-hmm. and they're just going to be. We're going to be seeing this all over the place now. You're going to be seeing lots of stories about it. And then it'll just get so boring that you won't see it ever again unless you dig deep. From the picture I'm looking at, I have two observations. One, the planets look very similar in size. I don't know if if they can tell the actual size of the planets. You're talking about the three planets that are orbiting the star that's in the constellation Pegasus, that one. Yeah, so they do. They look they all they're all gas giants and they're all pretty far out. I mean the innermost of those three has an orbit that's similar to Uranus. Then the one out from there is kinda like the orbit of Neptune, and then there's the the outermost of the three is farther out even than than Pluto. Right, so the, there are three gas giants pretty far from the star. Yeah, they're, they're respectively they're ten, nine, and six Jupiter masses, and also uh, respectively their their uh, their periods are 450 years, 180 years, and 100 years. But it makes um, sense that the first planets that we would dis- discover by this method, or these methods, I should say, would be ones that are large and far away from their parent star, because that way they're the easiest to separate out. You're not going to oh, yeah, see an Earth-sized planet. It's in like an, a drunk looking for his know. lost keys under the, the, the streetlight, because that's where the light is. That's right. <laughs> or where the light is not, actually. The other, the other cool thing about this is that because we're seeing the light that's coming from the planet itself. It's either reflected light or it's actually infrared in some cases where it's actually being em, you know, emanated from the planet itself. Because of that, then you could do all, all sorts of cool stuff with that information and, and find out stuff about, you know, does it have an atmosphere? You know, what kind of atmosphere does it have? You could tell lots of different things about the planet. Eventually, when we get our instrumentation sensitive enough, we'll be able to tell, hey, wait a second, there's, you know, there's biological markers in the atmosphere of this mm-hmm. planet, that That's type right. of thing. And uh, so that, it gets interesting when you when you. Well, this is really that. the first time that we can do that because you needed yep. light directly from the planet in order to be able to do spectroscopy on it. So now we can yeah, start telling what, what the hell the planet's actually made of. Yep. One other bit that I thought was very interesting is the uh, Fomalhaut B. Fomalhaut, by the way, is one of the coolest star names. But Fomalhaut B, they think it <laughs> may have an enormous ring system because it is giving off way more light than it should be right. given its its size, etc. So therefore, it probably has a ring system that's reflecting a lot of light. Yeah, and I think it could be huge, gargantuan right, ring system. Right, right. Must be, must be gorgeous. So let's say that one of these planets has water on it or is, you know, is an M-class planet to totally geek out. This may be one of the first solar systems that humans visit. Uh, well, certainly... Would be, we, we would be much more interested in visiting solar systems that have interesting planets around them when we get to that point. But that's so, you know, interstellar travel. Or at least like sending a robot there. It's pretty far. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it's so far off in the future. Even sending robots, the thing is it takes so long to get there with current technology that probably for every hundred years you wait, the technology will advance that you'll save multiple hundreds of years in the travel time. So, you know what I'm saying? If it's going to take 10,000 years to send a robot there, well, Christ, you know, wait 200 years, and then maybe it'll only take 5,000 years for ships that we can build 200 years oh, from. Whatever, yeah. something like that. So, and, and there's, no, there's really no, we're in no rush, you know, to build spaceships for interstellar travel. We might as well right. wait and really develop the technology. So, Steve, if they send a ship, like, every 10 or 15 years, all of them will get there at the same exact time. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Plus, Jay, if we're, if we're going to send people to a, a planet, or if we're going to send 
fetuses to a planet, no, however, no, however no, you want to no, do no, that. No, if we do that, it's not going to be a, a, a Jupiter, you know, a, a, a planet with three Jupiter masses. It'll be it'll be a planet that is that is actually a candidate for for life yeah, similar size, to Earth. Yeah. So th- this wouldn't be it. But this wouldn't be yeah, the one that we go to. Don't even joke around about that. All right. Return to the moon and don't forget the chicks this time. That's what I say. <laughs> it's going to be a while before we can see Earth-sized planets at Earth-like distances from their their stars. Well, Steve, wait, what are you talking about? Cosmic we, we lensing. Have found some that are that are that are rel- that are relatively Earth-sized. What was that? The one we found was like three Earth masses or something. Five. I think it was five. Yeah, it was five, and it was a little bit farther out. But I'm talking about directly imaging it like this, where we could see if it has life on it. Uh, oh yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't know. Uh, you'll, you'll, you never know. I, the next generation um, of uh, of space telescope or or whatever, um, but I mean they're on the drawing board. So I mean we'll see yeah. it in our li- we'll see it in our lifetimes. Hopefully, hopefully. The next news item is about the neuroscience of telepathy. This is turns just, out there is none. Yeah, it turns <laughs> out this is just one you know one of the worst studies I've seen in a long time. Rebecca, you blogged about this recently, actually. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's definitely set a new standard for really crappy. I'm I'm using air quotes here. Studies on the paranormal. What uh, these scientists did was took a sample size of one psychic and compared him with one average Joe who claimed not to have any psychic powers and gave them a test in which they were to reproduce a drawing that the scientists did. And while they were reproducing the drawing, uh, you know, using their psychic powers, they were in an fMRI machine that was uh, supposedly seeing what areas of their brain was lighting up were lighting up at, at what point the scientists I should mention are from the National Institute of Mental Health and Neurosciences and the Vivekananda Yoga Research Foundation, both of which are located in Bangalore, India and this study was published in the uh, venerable journal. The International Journal of Yoga. So you know that this was like big time. The funny thing is that I I read through the study and I read through all the technical information about the fMRIs and what they found, which parts of their brains were lighting up. And it was all, it was kind of confusing to me as a lay person. But then I looked at the actual results of the test where the psychic drew what the researchers had drawn. And the silly thing is that it really isn't very close. Like the researchers drew a circle with a bunch of, you know, broken up into a bunch of sections, um, I think eight sections, and the quote-unquote psychic drew a square broken up into four sections. It's like, um, okay, there's so many problems with this study. Let's start with the fact that the psychic didn't even really come close. I mean, there are some, when you look at it, there are some similarities in, in, in the drawings. Um, I agree. But the thing is, what you're saying is there's open-ended criteria. How do you judge whether something's a hit or not? Yeah, I mean, they they call it strikingly similar, and I, I think it's a bit of a stretch to say that. Um, the thing is, there are a million easier ways to to test this. For instance, I, w- I would recommend you get 
a dozen objects. The researcher uh, rolls a die, uh, one of your, you know, 12-sided nerd dice, maybe, and um, picks that object, right, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) picks that object, draws it, and then has both the control person and the psychic draw that object. You do it 12 times. If the psychic gets it more than say, three out of 12, then maybe you're on to something. If he's really psychic, he should be getting it, oh, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 times out of 12. Uh, and then we can go into all the particulars about what the fMRI is showing us. But until that point, it's just kind of like, look, we're doing science because we have a machine and it's doing things. Isn't this impressive? Uh, when in fact, it's anything but. Right. So, yeah, so- the bottom line was they didn't validate that he actually had hit the target. They had no way of scoring that or or no criteria by which they would decide that the psychic had a quote-unquote hit. It was just, oh, that looks similar. You know, that was their rigorous scientific yeah, criteria. And to make things worse, the drawing, by by the sound of what was written in the study, it sounds like a researcher just sat down and randomly drew something, yeah. which that's that's not, you don't leave things like that open because, you know, if you sit someone down and, and ask them to just draw a shape, you know, chances are they're going to draw a circle, a square, or a triangle, you know, it's... And so the, the guy cheated. The guy's a the, the typical magician, you know, he, he cheated. And, see, the thing is... We can't say that he cheated outright. Um, it certainly, uh, you, you could certainly, you could certainly make a good case for it, though. They, the paper doesn't go into the details on exactly how they treated the guy. They say that they adhered to Honorton Hyman protocol, right? The protocol set up by our, our dear friend Ray Hyman. Ray and, Hyman, and uh, but they don't, they don't really lay that out and say exactly what they did. And so, yeah, it's highly probable that. The uh, psychic cheated mostly because he's not a psychic. He's a magician. He's a fairly well-known magician. He's been on TV here in the States. His name's uh, Gerard Senehy. And he's, you know, he's basically doing standard magic tricks. And this Mm -hmm. is a standard magic trick. Um, You have your audience draw any object they want, reveal it, and then you turn around your piece of paper and, oh, my God, it's a remarkably similar drawing. Yeah. There are a lot of different ways to do it. And, you know, without seeing the actual protocol, it's impossible for us to say whether or not he cheated or not. But, you know, you could make that case. It's overall, this study is unremarkable on nearly every level and laughable on most of those levels. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a worthless study. Now, I, I did look at the fMRI part of it. And, you know, in fMRI's functional MRI scan, you're, you're looking at blood flow to different parts of the brain and inferring from that which parts of the brain are active during specific tasks. The problem is that you, there's no objective way to know what's actually going on inside somebody's mind, inside their brain. Right? You can only infer it because you are exposing them to some stimulus or you're making them perform a task at the moment. But just asking somebody to to do, you know to do something like you know to draw this picture there could be so many different things going on in their mind you really just have no idea which is why sample sizes of one are worthless 
You know, you, you just you you need to also to get images. What you're looking for with fMRI studies is you need to do multiple trials or multiple individuals, and then you do a composite. Because you want to factor out or average out all of the noise of other kinds of, of brain activity to see where the signal is. And sometimes the signal is just barely peaking above the noise. There's a lot of really crappy fMRI studies out there. I think really only the, the centers that are doing really tight or rigorous protocols and have a lot of experience are even generating decent data. So from an, from a purely from an fMRI perspective, this protocol and this study was absolutely worthless. And I'm not sure if we talked about this, but back in January of this year, Sam Moulton at uh, Harvard published a, a great study where he attempted to find a neurological basis for ESP by exposing people to different stimuli and seeing how their brain reacted, hoping to find any hint of ESP. And he wasn't working with people who claimed to be psychics because he didn't want uh, people who would specifically be trying to fool his tests. He decided that if there's such a thing as psychic powers that, like anything else in the world, it's going to be spread out throughout a population. And it might be very, very faint, but it mm-hmm. should still be able to be detected in some significant portion of the population. And so right. he put tons of people through... Uh, all kinds of tests where he was testing, for instance, clairvoyance by showing them photographs on a distant computer screen and uh, precognition by showing them photographs again in the future and trying to detect whether or not the first time they saw the photograph, whether or not the areas of their brain lit up to show that they had seen the photographs before. Cool things like that. And uh, in his paper, he pretty much conclusively found that there was no such thing to be found in the brain. Mm -hmm. And shameless plug, he's going to be speaking at Skeptics in the Pub on Monday, which is November 25th, if you're listening to this prior to then. Right. That is shameless. (laughs) That was shameless. But it was on topic. It was. It was by Uh coincidence. The November-December issue of Cortex, which is an actual peer-reviewed neuroscience journal, is a special issue dedicated to the neuropsychology of paranormal experiences and beliefs. Yeah, I've I've actually read that issue. um, Thanks to friends in the industry, and um, I highly recommend. Yeah, anybody who can get a hold of it should check it out. There's um, there are a couple of studies in it from you know SGU friends like. Chris French, Professor Chris French, did a fascinating test on haunted houses. He basically built a haunted house to see what would happen to people when he sent them through. Um, things like that. Very cool stuff. Yeah, so this is taking a totally different approach. Rather than just credulously believing in the paranormal and then doing a crappy fMRI study to validate your biases, where they're taking the notion that paranormal experiences are real things that people experience, meaning it's, it's an actual experience that people are having, and trying to understand it from both a psychological and neurological point of view. Again, not validating the paranormal per se, just trying to understand why people ha- claim to have these experiences. So it's taking a much more rigorous and very, in my opinion, much more interesting scientific approach to these things. And there's a, there's a ton of studies in this in this issue. We can't really get into all of them. We'll have the link and, and take a look at it if you're interested. Now, Evan, this is also the 30th anniversary of another interesting event. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, today's the 30th anniversary of the, what I refer to as the Jonestown Massacre. 
in which Jim jo- the Reverend Jim Jones uh, and his followers, Jimmy Jones, as part of the uh, uh, the People's Temple is how they were known, while in their refuge in Guyana, committed murder and suicide of uh, of all the members, and it was the largest greatest single loss of American civilian life in a non-natural disaster um, up until September 11, 2001, which is an interesting little fact that I hadn't Mm. known. When I think about Jonestown, I was eight years old at the time, but I remember when this came out on the news, and it was just huge, huge news stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, you guys all must, uh, Rebecca, you you probably did, but the rest of you guys guys must have, none whatsoever, Jay? The largest mass suicide, uh, I believe, in recorded history um, or in, in, in U.S. history. It's probably not accurate, though, Evan, to call it a mass suicide. Most of those people Correct. were flat out murdered. Yeah. It was really murder. 270 children uh, of, that, of the 918 dead in Jonestown. Mm-hmm. So certainly there's no disputing that that is outright murder. Um, of those yeah. children. Yeah, those people, either, they were gunned down, most of them, or they were forced to drink the... the actually, it was not Kool-Aid, even though that spawned the drink the Kool-Aid meme. It was some other brand, right? Flavor-Aid. They called yeah. it Flavor-Aid. Flavor-Aid, who apparently has better PR people than Kool-Aid. Right, <laughs> so Flavor-Aid. Yeah, they either forced people to drink it, it was, po- it was laced with poison. What, what was the poison? Was it arsenic? It was a combination of things, including cyanide. Um, <clears throat> apparently, he, cyanide. Apparently, he had a half a pound of cyanide delivered to Jonestown every week over the course of, of 18 months uh, that, they, mm-hmm. that he was you know, building up his stockpile. And they would actually go through rehearsals with the, with the whole community in which they would line up wow. as instructed, drink some liquid. It was just water or whatever. But they would go through a rehearsal of the mass suicide and everyone would, would participate. Wow. So what, did they, what was the point of the, the murders? Within their cult ideology, what what, what yeah yeah did like it what serve? was what was he telling them? Why did he want it to happen? Does anyone know? Um, from what I've read, it is reported that he was um, paranoid schizophrenic, and certainly uh, certainly had uh, was I'm sure was diagnosable in many in many other ways as well, and felt that there was this con- constant threat from the outside from the outside world that was looking to take them down, looking to oppo- uh, um, oppress them. Jim Jones was a communist and a socialist, which is something when I was looking into this, I was a little surprised to, to learn again. He began his life as, as an atheist, but he, but he was always a communist. He would, um, from, what, from what I've read, he would uh, pretend and play a preacher during his childhood years and gather up all his friends and uh, pretend to be a, a preacher and would lock them in a barn. And try to hold them there for as long for as long as he could, um, but he was he's pretty much a communist all, all wow. his life and was very influenced by Karl Marx and very f- influenced by the American Communist Party. This was uh, this was as he was growing up, um, you know, through the through the forties uh, and into his fifties. He founded his organization in 1955, um, and it's based primarily on um, on communism and the and and wanting to create the perfect little socialist community. Um, so, which is, which is, long story short, why they eventually left the United States. They had their headquarters in San Francisco in the 70s, but then they felt they were getting too investigated by journalists, by politicians, and other people, that they felt they had to flee. They, fleed, they fled to Guyana. They created a community there, which, which, they, <clears throat> which Jim Jones apparently thought he would be safe and out of the, uh, out of the sphere of influence of the United States and other 
non-communist uh, factions. Um, but you know, over over the time of his madness, it just got the better of him and felt threatened at all time. He became he became more sickly. He was taking drugs. Um, there was a congressman, Leo Ryan, who was a congressman from San Francisco at the time, who was basically begged by many people. There were some people who escaped Jonestown. There were some defectors. And they were writing politicians, basically, and trying to explain exactly what was going on here. And they said, somebody has to do something about this. And it caught the attention of, of Leo Ryan. And Leo Ryan and a small contingency actually uh, made their way down to Guyana to investigate firsthand what was going on down there. And that pretty much sealed the deal. Um, he was down there for a couple mm-hmm. days and the situation went from worse to to bat, to just outright disastrous. As Leo Ryan and his contingency were trying to leave, they were on the on the nearby airstrip boarding their planes. Uh, a truckload of cult followers with machine guns and other weapons pulled up and just started opening fire on Leo Ryan and his contingency. And the congressman was shot and killed. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the only congressman yeah. murdered in the line of duty in United States history, by the way. And four others, along with the congressman, also perished. The others managed to escape, fled into the woods, and and basically hid. And once that had happened, Jim Jones realized it was over. That was it. There was no way that they could escape scrutiny now. And that was it. They they went. Yeah. Apparently, Jones was paranoid even before that. That you know some of their members were going to be taken away, their children would be raised as quote unquote fascists, and there was they were debating whether or not they should commit mass suicide. But once Leo J. Ryan was murdered, Joe, this is all recorded on a tape, actually, yeah. the so-called death tape. Once that once he was murdered, the and and Jones announced it to the, to the other people who I guess were in the inner circle. The debate ended, and everyone agreed, okay, that we have to kill everybody I and mean, kill ourselves, commit what yep. they called revolutionary suicide. There's also actual camera footage of, of the attack um, yeah. of the of Leo Ryan's contingency at the at the airport. They have it. They show the truck pulling up and the guys getting out with the guns and they open fire and the camera kind of falls to the side on the ground. The cameraman died uh, in the in the process, but it continued obviously to, to record what was going on. Just a, just incredible. It just well, Jones is basically what we call a, a charismatic psychotic. And these people can be, as the name implies, extremely charismatic individuals. Those those are the people who become cult leaders, uh, and they can you know, lead people to these incredible situations. Amongst the ways, uh, I was reading a little bit more about how Jones actually began his community and how he lured some of these some of these people into his congregation. And here are some of the things he, that he, that he did for them. Um, he held faith healing. Services in which uh, I'll read this here. Um, these faked healings of newcomers involved using chicken livers and other animal tissues that existing temple members and Joe's claimed were cancerous tissues removed from the body. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, psychic surgery. Also, uh, he uh, Jones was big into prophecy. Uh, he, he 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 predicted things like a nuclear attack on Chicago in ni- in 1961. Uh, as as an as an example, a prophecy is so easy, man. That is the easy way out. Making crap up is easy. All the same tricks that charlatans and 
the faith healers of, of today still use. So, you know, it was interesting to see that, that Jones was just like all the others, just totally a total charlatan, uh, take, you know, taking advantage of these, of these unfortunate, poor, gullible people. Yeah. The thing that's amazing is that this was probably happening 3,000 years ago. You know what I mean? Some charismatic guy uses similar kind of tricks to, to get a little cult following going. This is just part of the human condition, it seems. Well, thanks, Evan, for that report. Yeah. Uh, we have one more news item to cover, uh, and then if we have time, we'll go on to a couple emails. Uh, a recent survey of attitudes about science in the U.K. has come out. It's not just the U.K. It's in uh, across all 27 uh, EU member states. And uh, about 25,000 people, age range 15 to 25, were surveyed. And they were surveyed by the European Commission. So the basic findings were that Europeans were positive about science and technology, which doesn't really surprise me. Uh, but some of the information that came out of this study was a little surprising to me. Um, a third of the people agreed strongly that science brings more, more benefits than harm. The rub is that half of the half of the Irish people surveyed and 43% of the, the people from the UK said they lacked the skills to enter a career in science, which means that they've concluded that that has a lot to do with the way that's, that science is delivered to the public and, and I guess part of it is its accessibility the perception, to, yeah. to the public. So people think it's useful, but they think that it's inaccessible right. to them. Um, so a woman named Diana Garnham, um, she's the chief executive of Britain's Science Council, and she, she agreed with the report. She, I guess she, from what I read, she seemed happy about the report, and she said that it indicated that uh, scientific organizations needed to do more to make science accessible. So I guess that was the basic the basic consensus. She said, uh, in the European survey, the UK has some of the lowest figures for making a positive choice to study science and some of the highest figures, 71%, for not being interested in a science profession. And she also said, while the survey is disappointing, it says loud and clear that we can do more in the science community to understand what excites and enthuses young people and will switch them on to a science future. Another interesting fact uh, that came out of this of the survey was overall that men had a more positive view about science and technology, and younger men were far more interested in new inventions and in technology, which I thought was was obvious. While young women were attracted to the subjects such as the earth, the environment, and the human body, so women were less interested in science and general science and technology inventions and technology, but they were much more into uh, things like. Uh, I would think like environmental studies, medicine, and things like that. Yeah, so it's unfortunate that you know things are not trending in the right direction, at least in, in the UK. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about the fact that in, in the West in general things are, are not trending in the right direction in terms of maintaining interest in, in children, especially women, in, in careers in science. So – uh, we're still not getting it done. I think the profile is raising that you know the, there's this recognition that we need to put more effort and enthusiasm into so-called STEM education for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Um, certainly, there's a lot of talk about that. On uh, well, I shouldn't say there's a lot of talk about it, but they, both both candidates were you know were were asked about it in, in, on uh, the science debate 2008, and they both recognize the importance of that but we'll see i mean the enthusiasm after sputnik certainly you know sparked a generation of, of increase in interest in science and engineering we feel like we need to do the same thing now but it just it's not happening yet i'm not really sure well i i have a couple of comments about this one you know when you say sputnik big events like that happen today like we have huge things that are discovered or, or invented 
and uh, advances in technology, but I think it's because it, people are just more used to it. It's just more infused into our into our culture. It's not like a brand new thing that no one's ever really heard or before or thought of before. That's yeah. one thing. Another thing is it's all along the way. It's like, you know, I think it's highly influential on children to see science and be around science um, also to have a science hero like Bill Nye, which is huge. Like, you know, how many Bill Nyes are there out there yeah. or on TV right now? And yeah. then it, it goes yeah. into, it goes even further because then, you know, what about uh, scholarships and things like that? Like, it just needs to be peppered along the, the path. You know, it's just not being pushed as hard. It's not, it's not valued as much. It has to be valued by the culture. And I don't think there's any substitution for that. I mean, yeah, you can make improvements by doing specific things, but you know, it, it is shifting to Eastern European, Eastern Europe, and Asia because that's in those cultures it's valued. Scientists are rock stars. Um, people see careers in science and engineering as highly valuable and attainable. That's the other thing. Is I, I for a long time I felt like there's the the anti-intellectual uh, uh, vibe in our culture is that scientists are. You know, somehow a different species. You know, they're um, doing science and thinking about science is this magically ethereal, inaccessible thing. In subtle ways, you know, like if you look at television programming, even starting with children, even shows like Jimmy Neutron, which is a, a cartoon for children, which is somewhat pro-science, the the main character doesn't actually work through problems. In, in a way that's accessible. He has a completely inaccessible intellect and he just comes up with answers through an, through an impenetrable, almost magical process. Plus he has a big head. He's, plus he has a huge head. <laughs> he does have a big noggin. That is also, for example, that's my problem with the, the new show, The 11th Hour, which has a, a scientist in a, in a very positive, very prominent role. It's about a science advisor to the FBI who, who goes around solving science-based mysteries and crimes, etc. But he, too, has like this preternatural intelligence and doesn't really work through problems so much as, you know, bam, he has it, and he just has this infinite, apparently infinite knowledge. It's as if be, doing science is only for the uber genius. It, it, you can't ever make sense of it, so don't even try if you're not these, you know, ridiculously smart people for whom it just comes naturally. You can't do it. And I think that's the wrong message. I prefer, again, as Jay, as you said, Bill, the Bill Nye approach where this is cool, this is fun, you can do it, you can understand science, let's go through it. You know, that's the approach that we need to be taking, but that's not what we see in the culture. It's going to be our undoing. Yeah, I, oh. I, I agree. I think it's, you know, I think at this point in our civilization, societies need to value science and engineering and math. Otherwise, their, their future is not going to be <laughs> the bright. The next dark ages are... You know, I know that I'm, I'm a huge fan of science, but what's cooler than science? Yeah, I know. it. Not to denigrate other things, you know, but there has to be that. I mean, you know, like we just took pictures of three planets around another star. What is not awesomely cool about that, you know? Plus, it's, you know, it's real. Yeah. yeah, it's real. Yeah, but so yeah, are Paris great. Hilton's titties too, and that's you know. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I can't see those with a telescope. <laughs> not not for lack of trying. I'll send you some pictures oh. of them. Well, let's go on to a couple of emails. The first email comes from Phil Thompson <laughs> from Towcester, 
I'm kidding. He told me to pronounce it as toaster. To- <laughs> toaster in, in England. And uh, Phil writes, Guys, I love the show. I think you are doing a great job for the cause of science, rationality, and critical thinking. Most of all, respect for the huge amount of effort you must all put in. So a point you missed about the shortage of sperm donations in the UK discussed in last week's science fiction. True, the regulatory issues put a lot of blokes off, i.e. having to be traceable, etc. But did you know that to donate, you are supposed to not have sex or wank for two months before the donation is given. Do any of you know any blokes capable of abstaining this long? Basically, there are two sorts of blokes in the world, those who can't abstain that long and those who lie about being able to. (laughs) Now, I I appreciate that letter, but that sounds like utter BS to me. And I immediately had to run to the interwebs and and look, and I could not find a, a trace of evidence to say that you have to not wank off or uh, have sex for two months before you donate sperm. I did see that there's like a six-month quarantine period after they get your sperm to make sure that you don't have diseases, but that doesn't mean that's just a quarantine for the sperm, not for your dick. I agree with you, Rebecca. I mean, I, I, that's the first thing I thought of too. That sounds like BS. So I, I also checked it out. And in fact, what they say is, this is now the rules for a donation of sperm, is that you have to be, be available to donate once or twice a week over a three to four month period. So they just they, they require a, a time commitment. And that duration is dependent upon the quality of your sperm. So the possible rationale for, for abstaining ahead of time is to keep your sperm count up, right? You don't want to be you know, using up all of your sperm otherwise. But they don't worry about that. They just, they'll verify the quality of the sperm counts that are for themselves, and that will determine how much you have to donate. But it even says in the rules, I mean, it talks about the fact that you can still even have sex with your partner throughout this period of time. You don't have to abstain even during the period of donation. So that is, that is a myth, I mean, that you have to abstain. Now, what that means, though, Phil, is that Part of the problem may be that there's this urban legend that you can't wank for two months, and maybe that's one of the problems that's decreasing the sperm donation, not the fact that you actually can't. Well, the it. Catholic Church set this up or something? I'm just happy we got to say the word wank <laughs> multiple times yeah. on the podcast this week. I love the fact, by the way, that always reminds me now of when we were interviewing Christopher Hitchens, <laughs> and he used the term wanker, and he felt obliged to explain to us. That that means one who jerks off. (laughs) We we got it, Chris. Yeah, we we when we got the wanker situation. I would just like to point out that I was partially right when I suggested that maybe the problem was that Americans are importing all of the good British sperm because I've received a few letters from people who are men in England who are dating American chicks. So I think my theory still holds up. You think so? We actually got a few yes. other emails pointing out specifically <laughs> that the loss of anonymity, what that really means is that any children that result from your donated sperm, when they turn 18, they could actually find out who you are. So I wanted to verify that for myself, too, because I figured maybe it's just they'll give, they're giving your medical information or you know, non-identifying information so that they know what their roots are and what their family medical history is. But in fact, if you've donated after April in 2005, that's correct. You're, the, 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 any children that are the product of your donated sperm are told your name, your last known address, and your date of birth so they could to facilitate them actually finding you. So that is definitely a legitimate point that that may be putting off a lot of guys who don't want 
you know, 18 years down the road don't want kids tracking them down right. saying, you're my biological father. Give me money. Well, that you're protected legally from that. You have no zero legal obligation to those to the children that, that you you have no you have no rights over them either, but you have no obligation so they cannot extort money from you or anything. Yeah. But they can know who you are. So anyway, that probably is having a factor as well. They can put you on Facebook or sperm book. Sperm in the Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for the clarification, Phil. The next email comes from Ryan Lawson from Ontario, and Ryan writes, Hi, I love the show, and I was wondering if you could answer a question I have. My friend recently mentioned that if someone was sleepwalking, you shouldn't wake them up because they could go into shock. I thought this didn't sound right, and I I couldn't find anything about going into shock. I was wondering if you knew anything about this and if you could tell me about it. Thanks. Well, Ryan, I happen to know a thing or two about sleepwalking or somnambulism, as we call it. Uh, this is a, a one of the parasomnias, which means funky stuff that happens while you're sleeping. This happens most of the time, this phenomenon of sleepwalking, which essentially what happens is that people who are asleep get up, they'll have a glassy-eyed, distant kind of look in their face, and they're, most of the time they just wander around aimlessly. You know, you don't have your eyes closed and your arms out. You know, you, you actually have your eyes open and you can <laughs> walk around. You may You are at risk of injuring yourself, but you're not going to just be necessarily bumping into everything you could you know actually navigate around stuff because you are seeing when you're in this state uh it lasts for 20 30 minutes or so and then most people just go back to bed and they have no memory of it most of the time it occurs out of non-rem sleep which means rem sleep is the period of sleep when you're dreaming so it comes out of non-dreaming sleep in fact the deeper stages of sleep what happens if you wake somebody out of this state they do not go into shock there are no untoward events. There's no harm that comes to somebody if you wake them out of this, this stage. What happens is they'll probably go into a confused state for a while because it takes time for the brain to transition out of the deeper stages of sleep to, to the full wakefulness. In fact, sleepwalking is a disorder that results from difficulties in transitioning stages of sleep. The brain actually shifts, like shifting gears, actually shifts from one sleep state to another. And when it, if it gets stuck or it has problems doing that, it could result in these parasomnias like sleepwalking. When you wake somebody out of a sleepwalking state, they're just confused for a while. They may seem like really delirious. And if you fully wake them up, they'll remember now that what somewhat of what's been going on. They'll, they'll have some memory of what was going on in their head and you know, what they were experiencing while they were sleepwalking. They may be embarrassed by what happened, but beyond some embarrassment and maybe some confusion, there's no ill effects or there's no harm. You know, they may not necessarily have any memory of what just happened, though, because speaking as someone who this has happened to um, hundreds of times, you know, sometimes, yeah, like, it's really, really bizarre. It's like, imagine that at one point you're having a perfectly logical conversation with a dinosaur, and then the next you turn around and it's that guy that you met at the bar last night, or your mm-hmm. significant other, or what have you. Uh, it's it's really it'll really throw you for the, for a loop. And what often happens with me is that I, I remember one time I was laying in bed with. Uh, my boyfriend at the time, I was talking, I was sitting up in bed and I was talking about a great idea I had for an invention. Can we have some names so that we can verify this story? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, Uh you cannot. Um, (laughs) 
the the names will be withheld to protect the innocent. Or the guilty. They're not um, so innocent. <laughs> but no, so I was telling him about this invention and then he liked to keep me talking because he found it amusing and then at some point I realized mid-sentence that what I was saying was absolute gibberish that it made no sense at all and then I was just like oh well hey never mind and then I just went back to sleep and I completely forgot all about it until like midway through the next day when he brought it up he's like so how's that invention coming along (laughs) and I, I just had like no clue about it. I had to think about it all day long trying to remember. And all I had was like this vague kind of memory of seeing him at one point during the night. And that was it. So it's it's just, it's a really bizarre thing. But I've been woken up many times while sleepwalking and sleep talking and sleep freaking out and I never right. died. Or so. went in the shock, well, right. The evidence does suggest that it, it is a symptom of neurological immaturity. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised. Oh. That's really but funny. I think the there. bottom line, though, I'm just saying. The bottom line is not only, if you, if you had to put a bottom line on this, not only is it not harmful to wake someone up, but I think you should wake, wake somebody up that is sleepwalking. Gen- most often, you know, I guess it's, it's somewhat harmless, but they can indeed hurt themselves, and people do hurt themselves uh, sleepwalking. And worst case scenario, they're going to be disoriented and maybe angry, but the vast majority of these people will just be confused. You lead them back to bed and and make sure that you know they there's nothing that could that could harm them if they if they get up again. Um, I mean, actually, Bob, though, the, you can just lead them to bed without waking them up. So that's well, yeah, that's, that's what I actually, mean. Just lead yeah. them. Yeah, you don't have to slap them across the face as they right. wake up and then right. bring them to bed. Yeah, just lead them. Just lead them calmly to bed. But uh, also another interesting area. Of this is that. Th- there are people that have you know doing very complex behaviors um, in this in this state, such as not only walking, talking, but dressing, undressing, preparing food, driving, driving, having Jeez. sex, and how about this one rare case committing ho- homicide? Yeah, right? I, I looked into that. I looked into that, and there's actually a couple of cases where that was raised as a defense, the sleepwalking defense, and it's it's still controversial. You know, it's not really. Accepted that it's definitely what happened, but okay. but because there's this very rare phenomenon of complex behavior during a sleepwalking like episode, it, the door was left open that it's possible. So okay. that's that that gets filed under plausible but unproven. Mm-hmm. And there actually were I came across two cases. I was asked about okay. that very specific thing before. Very interesting. That scares the bejesus out of me. I hope I don't kill someone <laughs> one day. I'd, my sister in law used to used to sleepwalk a lot, and she. He took a shower one night, say three, four in the morning. She's taking a shower. So, so if there's any, you know, if you come across any, you know, strange girls taking a shower in the middle of the night, just feel free to go in there and you know lead them back to bed and you make sure everything's okay. Ask right. anyone who's worked at a hotel desk, front desk, <laughs> about customers who have come down wanting to check out oh, at yeah. three in the morning. You know, in their pajamas mm-hmm. or naked or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> who knows what you do in that situation? I guess you have to wake them up, um, <laughs> or just, or just, or or just tell them go back, to, go back to your room, sir. It's not time, you know. Whatever they kind of yeah. coax them back, and they kind of, yeah. oh, okay, and work their way right. back. And tell them the room number too. I've seen a couple of people in that state. They do have just this glassy-eyed, just wandering kind of appearance about them, but they, but you can sort of gently direct them. Uh, one more email. This one comes from Brad from the United States, and Brad writes: Last week. Global warming, climate change came up on the podcast. Perhaps I am being overly sensitive, but it sounded like people who are trying to be skeptics of the whole CO2 causes the world to heat up were retarded. I exaggerate for effect. Is there a one of you who doesn't know about the DN the DHMO experiment? 
And by the way, DHMO stands for dihydrogen monoxide. How CO2 has been subjected to the same treatment is something to boggle the mind. CO2 is the ideal outcome of combustion. CO2 is the ideal food source for most plants. Without CO2, we die. When we build a colony on the moon which grows its own plants, guess what they are going to have to create? CO2. Greenhouses quite often up the CO2 concentration in order to improve output. This ignores the dubious quality of the warming, in quotes, signal. And then he gives a website for reference. The website is What's Up With That. It's a blog by a guy named Watts, and it is a known global warming denialist website. I'll just say that. Uh, He goes on, but that's the essence of his uh, email. I actually had a number of back and forths with Brad on this topic. You know, we've actually, on this this show, we haven't dealt an awful lot with the global warming issue, and our, our comments have been largely limited to the well this is the scientific consensus and we really haven't delved into a lot of the a lot of the specifics we actually we had invited a couple of different climatologists on the show but just never closed the deal with anyone so we still might in the future because i do think this is still an interesting topic what what i'm beginning to see and not just with this email but but leading up to this but but i i with the um the discussion I had with Brad, I delved into some of these specific points. What I'm beginning to see is, regardless of what you think the the ultimate truth of the matter is, scientifically speaking, about whether or not anthropogenic activity is warming the planet by the increase of greenhouse gases, CO2, methane, etc., there is a group of global warming deniers, and they are organized to some degree. You know, they have their own you know subculture. They and they have their set of arguments that they pass around, and they are absolutely deniers, in my opinion. That doesn't mean that they're wrong. It just means that they, what they are what they are going about doing and their arguments that they're making are denialist type arguments, and those arguments are wrong. Um, there's still some uncertainty about the degree of global warming that is being caused and the implications of that. So there's a certain amount of uncertainty. Uh, even the you know the IPCC said, yeah, it's ninety percent likely that human activity is is causing global warming. So that you know that leaves the ten percent window open for you know maybe our models are are inaccurate. But let me so let me give you an example of some of the specific arguments. Let's first go to the DHMO analogy that Brad was making. So what he's saying is that by blaming global warming on carbon dioxide, is saying that carbon dioxide is inherently a bad thing. It should be treated as a pollutant. And he's saying that's a fallacy. That's the fallacy similar to the dihydrogen monoxide thing. Dihydrogen monoxide is water. And you guys are are all familiar, of course, with that that now famous hoax where you get people to sign a petition saying that dihydrogen monoxide is an awful thing. It's part of acid rain, and if you get too much of it, it'll kill you. You know, all true statements, but they're just completely misleading. It's just water. My point back to, to Brad was that it's at, that's not an accurate analogy. First of all, we never said that, and it's not part of the, the, you know, the real mainstream conversation about climate change that there's anything inherently bad with CO2. Yeah, it's part of the, the life cycle. Plants breathe CO2 and exhale oxygen. We breathe oxygen and exhale CO2. If we didn't have the amount of CO2 that we have in our atmosphere, then we would be an ice ball. You know, we need the, the, the greenhouse gas effect from the amount of CO2 that we have. It's, it's a good thing. It's all about amount. So it's not, about, it's not anything inherent about the CO2 itself. It's only about the amount that's in the atmosphere and the effect that that has on the climate, on the, the equilibrium that our climate currently is in. That's it. So that's always a 
Right, and the the analogy to water would be valid only if we were all actually drowning at the time the argument was made. Uh, here's a couple of the points that Brad brought up. One was that, and this is one that I didn't know the answer to when he brought it up. I had to I had to look it up, but it didn't take me that long to find you know the the uh, a lot of information about it, the back and forth. He said that CO increasing CO two in the atmosphere won't increase global temperatures because the CO two that's in the atmosphere already is enough to absorb all of the long-wave radiation in the frequencies that it absorbs. It's therefore, quote-unquote, saturated. And increasing it further, therefore, won't absorb any more radiation from the Earth and therefore won't have any effect. So, quickly for background, the reason that CO2 is a greenhouse gas is because in the atmosphere it absorbs the heat radiation from the surface of the Earth, therefore keeping that, that heat, that, that energy within the atmosphere and, and causing the atmosphere and the surface of the Earth to warm further. What happens is you reach a certain equilibrium point where the amount of energy coming in from the sun equals the amount of energy that's radiating away, and then we have some equilibrium point of temperature on the Earth. Now, that argument, the saturation argument, was actually made like 100 years ago. And at the time, it was not unreasonable. You know, Somebody did an experiment where they had a column of air filled with CO2, and they found out how much of the, of the, of the absorption of, of uh, electromagnetic radiation you know, occurred over that amount of CO2. And if you increased it, you know, once you get to a certain point, increasing it further doesn't absorb. You, you're absorbing 100% of the radiation that, that CO2 can absorb. So absorbing more doesn't change anything. Doesn't, you can't absorb more than 100% right, of the radiation. But here's the fallacy with this. The fallacy is that it's treating the atmosphere as if it's a single thin layer, right? As if it like is a, the glass roof of a greenhouse. But that's not the case. The atmosphere is layered all the way up into outer space. What, what actually happens is the carbon dioxide at the, you know, near the surface of the Earth absorbs a certain amount of the radiation. Let's say it absorbs all of it. But then it heats up and it irradiates it in random directions, including to the upper layers of the atmosphere, which then more slowly heat up and then eventually irradiate away that radiation. And that keeps happening until the radiation is radiated out into space. But that happens in the upper atmosphere where it's a lot cooler and therefore a lot less energy gets radiated away. If you increase the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere then the radiation has to propagate into higher in the atmosphere before it can escape. It'll therefore, it will escape from the atmosphere at the higher, cooler levels. More heat will be trapped in the atmosphere, and you'll reach a higher equilibrium point. That's why the saturation argument is fallacious. I gave Brad actually several opportunities to address that, and he never addressed that point that I came back. He reiterated his initial point or ignored it, but he never really had an answer for that. Mm. And I couldn't find one you know, on the internet. Somebody may have an answer to it somewhere, but I haven't heard one. What I do find is w- with denialists is that when they make points, points that may have been debunked even decades ago, and then when you come back with the answer to that, they just shift to another point. There's one side that always seems to be winning the debate, and the other side just shifts from one sort of quasi-reasonable point, but that ultimately gets shut down to another. And that is a pattern that I have seen before, right? That's exactly the experience that you have when you're arguing with creationists. You know, they have some superficially impressive-sounding point, and then when you completely demolish that, they never cede the point, 
They never agree to any common ground or any facts that we can agree on. They just simply you know, shimmy over to another point. So that's why I say that I think a lot of the people, you know, certainly on the Internet, there is a subculture of global warming denialists who are engaging in that kind of activity. I do think that that's largely, in fact, separate from the real debate that's happening within scientific circles about, you know, a lot of complexity about the climate models and, you know, are we accounting for all the factors? I, you know, there still seems to be this fairly strong consensus that man-made global warming is happening and is significant, but there's a lot of complexity there and it is very difficult to extrapolate into the future exactly what the consequences of all this are going to be. Despite the fact that Brad's purpose in emailing me was to prove that he essentially wasn't that all people who deny or are skeptical of the notion that CO2 is heating up the world are, are not deniers, he actually unfortunately reinforced that opinion in me. So thanks, for, thanks Brad, for writing. Actually, as I said, we had a, a fairly, fairly long exchange, and there's a lot, there were a lot of other points that brought up, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about more points in the future. But actually, I found it useful because I learned something new about, you know, about atmospherics. It's time for Science or... Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Now, this week, and occasionally in the past, I have diverged from this this, uh, typical pattern, and I give four items, in this case three of which are false and only one of which is true. Uh-huh. And there's a special theme this week. So the this show will be airing on Saturday, and the, the Thursday after the show comes out is... Um, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, right. Thanksgiving in the United States. In the United so States. So I have a Thanksgiving-themed science or fiction this week. And Steve, three, three are false and one is true. Yeah, so there's four items. Only one of these items is true. So you oh, have to tell me... Oh, that's great. We have three chances things, to be right. Oh, wait. You have to tell me which one is true. Right. Oh. Well, that's not easier. Right. This is harder. <laughs> okay. Is everybody ready? Oh, yeah. Right. Item number one. The pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. Item number two. Suicide rates are typically higher during the holiday season. Item number three, the pilgrims of Plymouth Colony in today's Massachusetts did in fact share a meal with the Wampanoag Indians in the autumn of 1621. And item number four, the traditional daily garb of the pilgrims was mostly black. Evan, why don't you go first? All right. Only one of these is true. That is fascinating. Well, let's take them one by one. Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. Well, that's what I was taught when I was a kid. I haven't looked that up in a long time. So that could very well be wrong. Suicide rates typically higher during the holiday season. That is a commonly sort of held belief, I think. And that also is quite likely to be untrue. Uh, Pilgrims of Plymouth Colony had a meal with the Indians in the autumn of 1621. I think that's right. And then the garb of the pilgrims was mostly black. No, I don't think that's true. I'm going to say that the meal is the correct one. Okay, Bob. Okay, landing at Plymouth Rock. I I think that's just a, a common. That's a that's a uh, Washington chopping down the the uh, the cherry tree. I think. <laughs> um, I'm not. I'm, I'm I'm thinking that's false. Let's see. I'm going to go to three. Um, they did ha- share a meal with the with the Indians. Man, 
Jeez, I don't know. The, and this could be false as well. I'm kind of leaning towards that being false. I'm just there's so much distortion and uh, with these stories over time, and who knows what what the hell really happened. Um, I mean, th- not that we don't know, but you know, a- any aspect of of this the could details, be right. could, is suspect. And the the garb, the 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 pilgrim garb being black. I mean, it could be. I mean, that's what they show. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, if it wasn't. If it was not mostly black, but the the suicide rates, that, I mean, that just makes sense to me. Uh, stress is high, very high uh, during uh, during the holiday seasons for for these borderline people. You know that would think about committing suicide and and really could do it. Uh, so that's making me think that 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 is true, uh, just because of the stress of the holiday season. And I don't know really, but I'm just going to guess that too is is uh, true. The suicide rates. Okay, go ahead, Rebecca. Um, there's no way the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. That's all BS, I'm sure. Um, suicide rates, I'm pretty sure that... I heard a rumor once that said they were higher in springtime um, because people are depressed during the holidays and they think it's just because of the weather and then when the weather clears up and they're still depressed, they decide to kill themselves. <laughs> Sharing a meal with the Wampanoag Indians makes sense to me and I'm... I could see that actually happening. And the traditional daily garb of the pilgrims being black also makes sense because they were Puritans and they were boring and they were not very fun to be around at all. However, they could just as easily be wearing brown or whatever they happen to be able to stitch together because um, they're boring. So I'm going to go with uh, the fact that, yes, the pilgrims did share a meal with the Wampanoag Indians. True. Okay, Jay? Okay. I'm pretty sure the pilgrims didn't land at Plymouth Rock. I'm also pretty sure <laughs> that suicide suicide rates uh, are not higher during the holiday season. And I'm also pretty damn sure that the pilgrims did not wear mostly black clothing. So that only leaves me with I'm pretty damn sure that we did have some type of Thanksgiving festivities with Indians back in uh, 1621. Okay. So, Bob, you're by your lonesome on the suicide rates. The other three think that the Pilgrims did, in fact, have a meal with the Wampanoag Indians in the autumn of 1621. But you all agree that the belief that the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock is fake or fiction, and that one is indeed a myth. That is not true. There is no historical evidence to suggest that is true. The first notion that they even landed at Plymouth Rock was recorded about a hundred years after the fact and it was done probably just as a promotional thing. Uh, in fact, the, the the pilgrims are known to have made landfall at a, at a different location. Uh, they've, they made landfall at Provincetown, so not even in, uh, not even in Plymouth. P-Town! P-Town, right. P-town the San Francisco of the East Coast. You, you all also agree that the traditional, the traditional daily garb of the pilgrims was mostly black. You, th- you all think that that one is a myth, and that one also is a myth. That is a myth. Uh, the image that we have of pilgrims, which is the black outfits, the big buckles on the shoes, the, <laughs> yeah. the pointy hats, and the blunderbuss. Yeah, the third grade pageant kind of Yeah, the third image. grade pageant image of the pilgrims <laughs> is totally fake. That is a cartoon image that was made up in the 19th century. The reason for the big buckles is because at the time, big buckles was an image of being quaint, 
It was just that's what quaint things looked like at the time. The same thing with the blunderbuss. That's the the gun with that with the flailed end. You know, it sort of cur- the curves flared out end. the flared end. Yeah. At the, that looks um, like a trombone, actually, right? Yeah, right. So that just looked quaint. So that was it. It was just a contrived costume that looked old fashioned at the to people at the time. I wonder if it was part yeah. of an early marketing campaign contrived. for a product or something. You know. Someone threw out a flyer trying to promote a product or something or an idea. Well, it was shortly after. I mean, late the, the Thanksgiving became a holiday uh, in the a, the Lincoln administration. It, that was when it became federally a, a, an official American holiday. Before that, it was really only celebrated in New England. And so it was, you know, at that time when it was then being promoted and the whole, you know, the image of the pilgrim and a lot of the mythology sort of arose up at that time. And a lot of the things that we associate with a typical. Thanksgiving was really just the tradition of that time. The the meal, for example, you know, with the, the turkey and the cranberry sauce and the corn and everything, <laughs> all, all contemporary to that time. The only thing that we know for sure, this wasn't one of the items, but there's a lot of myths to, to choose from, but the only thing that we know for sure that the pilgrims ate during that time period was corn. deer, was venison. That's the only thing that's actually recorded, you know, that they had venison. They may have had wild turkey, but we don't know. Probably not corn, probably not anything else that we associate with it. Bob, you're the only one who thinks that suicide rates are typically higher during the holiday season, and that one is a myth. That is not true. Crap. It is true that the suicide rates peak in the spring and even into the summer. I'm not sure if we know exactly what the reason for that is. There are a couple of theories. Rebecca, was it you who said that they when they find that they're still depressed after the holiday season, that they think oh, it wasn't just the holidays. I really do have nothing to live for, and they kill themselves. I don't think that's true. Yeah, I always suspected that that was yeah. just an urban legend, though it you know has a certain tidy yeah. sense to it that yeah. I appreciate. Well, the bottom line is we don't really know. I think the prevailing theory, or, or one theory that I've at least heard within scientific circles, is that it has to do just with exposure to light. That it may be part of seasonal affective disorder. It may also have nothing to do with that, or maybe other factors that would cause a seasonal cycle like that. But April, I think specifically, is like the peak month for suicides. Oh, Easter, right. It is the cruelest month. There's no spike in the holidays at all. So that means that the pilgrims of Plymouth Colony in today's Massachusetts did in fact share a meal with the Wampanoag Indians in the autumn of 1621 is fact. At least... And then slaughtered. That is historically true. Just sold in blankets infected with smallpox. That was was decades (laughs) later. Um, So so that is true. There There was an actual meal that happened around that time, but they... Um, the the you know I read several sites discussing what is probably accurate about that time that the meal was not like a big sit down around a table with some kind of ceremony. In fact, they just piled a bunch of food together. And then people ate over a few days, yeah. and just sort of came and went and ate whatever they wanted, kind of in a very informal fashion. Is, is probably what happened. Buffet. And again, the, yeah, the only thing they knew for sure that was on the the menu was venison and and wild fowl. I heard that eel was on the menu, but I. I yeah, you know, I didn't. See, I didn't read that. I, I could never correct. Yeah, unagi. No, it yeah. certainly wasn't turkey, like you said, Steve, and potatoes and all. Well, it could have been. There were wild turkeys living in New England, but they still just, are. I think it was tofurkey. But uh, and they they did say the delicious tofurkey. There was a report of Something. that they ate wild fowl, but we don't know if that was turkey or goose or whatever. I don't know. But it uh, we don't have any confirmation of that. Again, the only thing there's confirmation of in terms of writing, you know, pe- mm-hmm. like diaries or people writing what what. They ate so where'd the cornucopia come from? Most of that's Victorian age tradition that just got grafted onto 
the Thanksgiving holiday. How about pumpkin pie? Same thing. How about football? And the garb again, as I said, the other thing I didn't I didn't point out that um, they wore you know earthy tones, gray, brown. You know there would there could be some black in there, but they, yeah, were, they didn't. They weren't all uniform, that in black. Right? Yeah, there was no wasn't uniform. A uniform, right? Yeah, it was they, it was plain, but it was you know just like earthy kind of simple yeah, colors. Probably what everyone else was wearing. So that was our special holiday version of science or fiction. Oh, I'm stuffed. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> now we could all go to sleep <laughs> oh, on a trip to Oh, uh, yeah. Is that another myth? That's another. That, 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 there is yeah. a. Uh, the you know, tryptophan from turkey can in, induce a little somnolence, but the effect is probably minor, yeah. and it probably is much less than the effect of just eating a lot of calories. <laughs> yeah, your body wants to digest. You'll physically calories. get tired from the act of eating before the yeah, tryptophan right. will take effect. <laughs> right. Well, good job, everyone, including uh, you, Bob. Yeah, yeah. Bob is a good yeah. try. Everybody, but try. Bob. Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? Yes, I have. A- I have a quote. Uh, this quote was sent in by Paul Southworth in response to me requesting a quote from from females. And um, this quote is from Pearl S. Buck, who, interestingly enough, was a prolific American sinologist and a Pulitzer Prize-winning American writer. Who knows what the word sinologist means? Or sin is like to bring together sin, like a, synonym, synonym. similar just the study of similarities or the I don't know it says here uh, synology in general use is the study of China and things related to China uh, oh how oh, is Sino, how is that spelled S I N oh S I was thinking S Y N yeah that's S-I-N. right yeah. too Sino relations yeah that's China oh, okay. should, it's our fault we should have asked him how to how we spelled it yeah yeah well, I didn't come up with the word I'm just S I N. It was a word. You learned something. I've never everything. even heard that word before. I've heard like Sino American, yeah, in that yeah. context. Yeah, we we yeah, could have defined that. So there's a quote, huh? There's a quote, yeah. I thought that was cool. <laughs> that was a cool word. So, so she said, I feel no need for any other faith than my faith in the kindness of human beings. I am so absorbed in the wonder of earth and life upon it that I cannot think of heaven and angels. Pearl S. Buck. That's a good quote. Pearl. Good quote. That's good. Wish I knew her. Well, thank you all for joining me again. Yeah. To Thanks to, to all of our listeners, by the way, for heeding the call and, and helping to uh, vote for us on Dig and all the various other things. That, and you know, again, we'll try to make that as easy as possible by providing links on the homepage. You know, for, you know, for whatever reason, our Dig votes got cleared out, so we have to vote again. So if you haven't dug us in a while, we would appreciate you doing that. Keep our profile as high as possible. Jay, I hear there's a website update coming sometime soon. Well, I have a How's couple things going? I want to talk about. Uh, one, there is an organization coming out of Australia called the Young Australian Skeptics. That's at youngausskeptics.com. Uh, so any uh, young Australian skeptics that are interested in the movement, please. Is that skeptics with a K or a C? That's skeptics with a K. Okay. Good. Just clarify. The right way. <laughs> so a, li- a listener sent it in. I thought I'd, I'd make a mention of it. They, they, they asked to be mentioned, and uh, I think it's, it's good for us to support new and upcoming groups. We support up-and-coming skeptical groups, absolutely. 100%. And, of course, there's also Teen Skeptic to also add to the blog role of your favorite teenager at skeptic.org slash teen. Awesome. Just thought I'd get that in Teenage there. skeptical women. What's better than that? Go youngins. All right, so, so the website update. Um, first, the project started a year ago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, been, it's been an incredibly long road. Yeah, so that means, what that means is for the last year, I've been told, it'll be about two weeks. Yeah, it, it always <laughs> seemed two weeks away, which is ridiculous, I know. But, um, you know, I'm slightly... 
It's like any contracting uh, job. It'll be about yeah. two weeks. Yeah, I'm slightly embarrassed, but the bottom line is this. There, there was a certain amount of work that needed to be done, and it's finally getting done. And I have a lot of people to thank, but I'm not going to actually do any thanking or do anything, anything, anything at all until we do launch it. Yes. I, I just really need to to thank the people involved, but it is coming very soon. It looks great. It tastes great. Everything about it is awesome. And it is going to be a, a work in progress as well, so we're going to be adding content as we go and everything, but it's it's coming and it looks fantastic. Great. I can't and wait. It'll be live in two weeks. <laughs> it'll be live in about two weeks. <laughs> a couple all more right. minutes, Chief. <laughs> well, Jay, I do appreciate all the work you've been putting into it. You have been putting a ton of work into that. and it's, I, I look forward to the opportunity of thanking all the people who have been volunteering to, to help you once the project's actually up and we'll, we'll bring some, some of them on the show to do that. And while you're talking about volunteering, let's talk about volunteering yes. real quick. We did get this work done solely through volunteer work. And if you have anything that you think you can add to the show or help us in any way, or you, you know, if anyone would like to volunteer for anything, just please let us know because we actually could absolutely use the help. There's a ton of things um, that we'd like to get done that we don't have the resources to do. So if anybody has any ideas or, or just wants to say that you'd be willing to volunteer – um, just let's start kicking ideas around. We have a lot of stuff that we know that we'd mm-hmm. like to get done that we're going to probably formalize and put on the message board at some point. But if anyone has a unique talent, anything, just let us know. We'd love to talk to you. And one final thing. The 2008 year-end special episode is coming up before you know it. If you have... Oh, exciting. It's really exciting. Mm-hmm. And we'll put this on the message board as well. But if you have any... If you would like to vote for your best... Interview quote news item, the, the the funniest quote from any of the rogues for the year. Then email that to us, and we'll be we'll be discussing sort of the best of SGU for two thousand and eight. So just send us anything like that that you would like to have us discuss on the wrap up show for the year. Well, yeah. thanks again for joining me, guys. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Steve. thank you, Steve. Our pleasure. As always. And until next week, happy Thanksgiving. And this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. (laughs) 